0: It really is a gift um, that we're able to still do this this morning and gather and and to be able to gather with all those of you that are watching online as well. Good morning to you. We are in our third week of looking at the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13. It's a mini-series that we're doing, a four-week mini-series called Seeds of the Kingdom. And what we've seen thus far um, is that Jesus is using very common imagery and language to communicate to all of his listeners and the crowds of people that would have been with him. That things aren't always as they seem, and this kingdom may function somewhat differently than what all of the people around him would have been expecting, because remember, the expectations of a Messiah, as we've talked about in couple the past couple weeks, the expectations of a Messiah were always that there would be immediate transformation immediate change. Things were going to happen right away. It was going to be big. It was going to be explosive, like another exodus, like when God took the Israelites out of Egypt. It was going to be like that when the Messiah came. It was going to be an immediate change of power. They had been accustomed to waiting for this, and now they wanted immediate results. They wanted change, they wanted it now. Not so similar to some of our own desires in this season of wanting change, wanting things to to be different, wanting a turnover of events, wanting something to happen. But as we saw in the parable of the sower, receiving this message, receiving this seed of the kingdom, And accepting it isn't always as easy as one might have expected. It's not just like a simple turnover of events or or of power. We saw this last week. There's opposition and hostility against this kingdom. And you can't just stamp it out and start all over again. That's not how it works. Again, Jesus is unraveling the mysteries of his kingdom in this chapter, particularly in these passages that we're looking at, that would have been hard, if not sometimes disappointing, for his listeners to hear. Because it's just not what they expected. Which is why he says to them, blessed are you who have the ears to hear. In other words, blessed are they who can imagine beyond their expectations. So we're looking at two very short parables this morning, but they're interconnected. They highlight another mystery of this kingdom. We're looking at, oh, my page is on Second Kings. We're looking at Matthew chapter 13. So if you've got your Bible, please go there. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. So just three verses this morning. Starting at verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So remember from the previous couple of weeks, all of this, all of this this whole trajectory that Jesus is setting us on, all of this is about hearing the word, receiving it, understanding it to some extent, recognizing its importance, and then bearing the fruit of it, bearing witness, and sowing the seeds of this kingdom. So what then is the mystery in these couple of parables that Christ is highlighting for us? We're going to take one parable at a time and, and pray that the Lord gives us the ears to hear and understand them. So verse 31 and 32, this first parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Okay, so a a couple clarifying comments here. This is a parable, okay? so a, a proverbial story. So there's, there's some artistic license taken here. Because a mustard seed wasn't actually the smallest seed in the entire universe. A, a cedar seed or an orchid seed is actually a little bit smaller. But in the Middle East, it was very common to use the mustard seed as an expression of something that was small. So it's, it's similar to ways that we use expressions today. You know, oh, that's small, like a blow. whatever. It, a mustard seed was the, was the Middle Eastern version of, of the that kind of an expression, okay? So it's, it's a phrase that was often used. He's he's trying to make a point, in other words. It was also common to use the example of a tree when you're speaking of a mighty kingdom. We see this in the Old Testament. In, in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar has that vision, that dream of this mighty tree, this great, enormous tree that's visible to the ends of the earth with, with abundant fruit and enough room under it for all the birds and the animals to come and gather we see this in other ancient Near Eastern literature. A great tree was a common image for a great empire. We still see that in some pieces of literature. And all the nations that benefit from this great empire are able to then come and find shelter under its branches. That's very common imagery. So again, Jesus is using very common language, images that people would have understood very easily in order to make a point here. But how he's applying it is really unusual. He's comparing the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. A tiny, tiny little mustard seed. And not only that, but this tiny, itty-bitty little mustard seed doesn't exactly turn out to be the most grandiose object. A, A mustard seed, yes, grows into a sort of tree, but it's it's kind of more like a bush. It, it's, it, they, they can get up to 20 feet tall. It's usually between like 6 and 20 feet. But Jesus isn't exactly pointing to, you know, the great mighty cedar of Lebanon. It's like the, the mighty mustard bush. It's not exactly the most impressive thing in the world. It, 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 could have, it could have chosen something different. Again, though, this isn't what people were expecting of the kingdom of God coming to earth. Jesus still says that when this thing grows, it it will be the largest of garden plants so that all the birds, i.e. all the nations, can come and gather in its branches and find rest and shalom. It's it's small and unimpressive at first, but when it grows, it, it gradually gathers in more and more, little by little. That's signs of the kingdom coming near. So it has this great destiny But there's nothing immediately impressive about it. The second parable has some similar conclusions. Verse 33, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Okay, this would... This is the point in Jesus' teaching where I can kind of imagine all of the disciples in the crowds, their eyes just sort of glazing over because this kingdom has suddenly become very boring. First a mustard seed, and now yeast in dough. Are we making a sandwich? That, like, what, what is Jesus trying to do here? Because this is not in any way, again, what would have driven them to be excited about this kingdom, about what's happening here. I mean, come on, Roman cities had bakeries, like places where you could go and receive professionally baked goods, Roman donuts with sprinkles. There was, there was all sorts of different analogies that he could have used here. But instead, he uses the simple example of a rural Galilean woman doing something that he would have seen his mom doing growing up setting aside a, a piece of, of leaven, a piece of dough kept over from the previous baking, letting it sit in order to ferment, and then adding it to, adding that yeast to the rest of, of a new batch of dough. But what happens here is that that little piece of leaven changes the whole character of the baking, right? If, you, if you're familiar with baking, it, it It changes it from being something dry, unleavened bread, right? Dry and uninteresting to something abundant and delicious. In other words, there's a transformative power at work in the yeast. You don't see it happening, but you can see its effect by how it transforms that which it indwells. It seems tiny and insignificant at first, but once it's planted, it completely transforms it this according to jesus is the mystery of the kingdom this is what he's trying to unravel for us in these passages it starts small it doesn't come in this big pomp and glory in big and massive ways it it looks like a mustard seed like yeast working silently in dough it's going to surprise people it's not going to fulfill all of their expectations to speak of the kingdom in these kinds of ways would have been a bit scandalous nobody expected the kingdom to come in these kinds of ways nobody expected the king god to come back in these kinds of ways that's not how he was supposed to come and no doubt jesus disciples would have frequently been listening to him speak and kind of looking at each other and going what are we doing (laughs) what are we doing here are we following the right guy remember john the baptist when he was in prison he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are, are you the one that we're waiting for? Or, or do we need to be waiting for somebody else? Because this isn't looking like what we thought it was going to look like. But throughout scripture, it, it definitely seems to be God's rubber stamp on the world to act in ways that we don't expect. And you know why that is? I think that's because we so easily always want to control the narrative. And this is his way of making sure that we don't. He acts in ways that we don't expect. Here in this kingdom, the smallest and the most obscure of objects can have the most powerful and transforming effect. This tiny kingdom seed can infiltrate the whole thing. Once it gets into the dough, it just permeates everywhere. That's how our king wants to operate. Christ himself in it, and it's beautiful actually that he uses both a man and a woman in these parables to represent himself. He he himself has taken that mustard seed and that leaven and he's planted it in the hearts and minds of all those who seek to follow him. And that seed, that leaven over time, is exploding up and transforming into the kingdom of God on earth. And the more that we see the birds and the nations gathering into it, the more we know we're on the right track. That's a glorious destiny that lies ahead. But as Eugene Peterson once put it, it's, it's a long road of obedience in the same direction. Again, it, it just doesn't look as impressive and as immediate as we always want it to be. We are following our king, but the results aren't always as impressive as we want them to be. In order to live into this mystery, which which is at times really tough, we need to have a kingdom imagination. It's what this whole series is about. It's building a kingdom imagination, building this reality so that we can live into our vocation as, as missionaries, priests, and prophets, to think bigger and bolder than what we see directly in front of us that goes beyond the ordinary and the reasonable. I was recently reading some of the prophetic imagination by Walter Brueggemann, which is a great read. And he quotes from a novel called Imagining Argentina, which is a narrative focused on a time when Argentina was in, in a sort of the absolutism of the state. There was a lot of suffering and, and it was enforced by torture, and so it was a great time of distress. And the main character, Carlos, has the miraculous gift of being able to create future realities based on his own anticipatory imagination. He can, in other words, he can make up story, he can make stories about people that actually alter the reality. This is a novel, right? So, but it actually alters the reality. So he writes this, men appear in the middle of the, in the middle of the night to give back babies snatched with their mothers. Holes open in solid concrete walls and tortured prisoners walk through to freedom. Carlos's imagination actually finds people who have disappeared. His friends are cynical, but Carlos grasps that the contest here is not between imagination and the real, but between two types of imagination the nightmare world of torture and disappearance of bodies is inseparable from the general's imagination of what Argentina and Argentines are, Carlos realizes that he had been living inside their imagination. So to unpack that just a little bit here, this is, again, this is just a novel, it's a story, but the point of it is is intriguing. Are we caught up? in the imagination uh, of the the state and the world around us? Are we caught up in in the reality of what's around us and and pressing in on us? Is that where our imagination is? Of, Of chaotic elections and polarizations and pervasive pandemics. That is reality, but do we only exist in that reality? Or are we also caught up in the imagination and the mysteries of Christ's kingdom, that we are involved in something so much bigger and so much broader that 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 kingdom is working among us and within us while existing in all this other stuff. Because as long as we imagine what they imagine, as long as we stay in the imagination of of the fatalists and the atheists and the non-believers, we're hooped. We're hooped. (laughs) Because our king has called us This is why our king has called us to live into the imagination of his kingdom. It's an imagination that Christians throughout the centuries have sought to live into, even in the direst of circumstances, because it allows them to see the world differently and to still have an impact. When I exist in the hope of that kingdom, when I dream about that kingdom coming here, knowing that it's moving and transforming lives and maturing without me even realizing it, that there's this power at work around me that I can't even see, then then I begin to bear the fruit of it because that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I want to see. That's what I believe in. Billy Graham was once invited to speak at the International Conference on World Peace in 1982 in Moscow, Russia. And it was a bit of a scheme by the society to come off as peacemakers because they were inviting, you know, the Christian Billy Graham to come. And um, it was sort of their way of trying to come off like that as peacemakers. And, And some American reporters were pretty angry with him and asked him in an interview, what good would it do, Billy, to preach the gospel in the center of Marxism? And Graham responded with this The gospel, says the Apostle Paul, is the power of God unto salvation. Preaching the gospel is like placing a ticking time bomb in the structures of oppression. One day, it will go off. That is the confidence of someone who lived, at least most of the time, in a kingdom imagination who trusted so greatly in the power of the gospel that he could see it, he could visualize it, transforming whole societies. In so many situations, all it took was one Christian, one Christian witness, one woman or man, one boy or girl, to usher in the coming of Christianity, to build the kingdom of God on earth. One individual who's been set on fire for Christ who can go and and set a flame somewhere and kindle it within others. As one scholar put it, the mystery of the kingdom is the power of invisible littleness. So we can resist the temptation to spruce up the gospel or make it bigger. We always think we have to make things bigger and better. No, the influence of the gospel lies in its little hiddenness. This is the kind of season, the one that we're in right now, where the kingdom and the gospel can start feeling really small. Can start feel really small. Is it actually growing? Because I don't see the fruit of it. Lord, are you doing anything? We look around at our motley crew sitting here and we go, what can we do? What impact can we have? I know, I know, so many of us frequently hear this, I'm just so tired of this. I'm just so tired of this season. I just want it to be done. I just want it to be over. We feel chained and and handcuffed. We can't do anything. We can't do the things we want to do and see the people we want to see, and, and it can get really discouraging. But honestly, the only thing And I've found this for myself as well. The only thing that can pull us out of that discouragement is remembering through prayer, scripture, and worship that we have a God who is moving and acting and working and transforming hearts still today. The King is on the move. He never stops. And we can still participate in that perhaps in even more creative ways and imaginative ways than we, than we did before. I've seen numbers of cases where, where people have thought like, oh, I've never thought to do this before, but this is a good opportunity to dot, dot, dot. What? There is transformative power. There's more transformative power in a mustard seed than we realize. Little things can have huge impact. There was a pastor down in Argentina, I didn't realize that I actually am using two examples from Argentina this morning, but hey, there was a pastor down in uh, Argentina by the name of Juan Carlos Ortiz, actually both of them have the name Carlos as well, that was not intentional, but by the name of Juan Carlos Ortiz, he wrote a book called Call to Discipleship and he he shared this story when he was speaking at a leadership conference in Boston. He was the pastor of the fastest growing church in Buenos Aires. His church had gone from 300 to 1,000 in a very brief period of time, and everyone in the church, of course, was very proud of that fact, including himself. Well, one Sunday morning, he had prepared a message to preach on love. And so he went to the church, and the worship service began, and eventually the worship leader announced that after the next song, Pastor Juan, or Brother Juan Carlos, will come and bring us his message. But as he stood up to go and speak, he had a strong compulsion that he wasn't supposed to preach the message that he had been ready to to give. He wasn't supposed to preach it. So he got to the pulpit, and he said, my text this morning is this. Love one another. And then he closed his Bible, went back to his seat, and sat down. After a couple minutes, the worship leader leaned over him and said, am I supposed to play another song? But he didn't do anything. He just sat there quietly, And after another couple of minutes, he got back up, went to the pulpit, and said again, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is this, love one another. And then he closed his Bible, went back down to his seat, and sat down. Apparently, his wife was sitting up in the balcony and, and thought that her husband had finally flipped his lid. But again, he got up a third time, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is this, love one another. And then finally, someone in the congregation turned to somebody who was sitting next to them and said, is there any way that I can love you today? Somebody else in the congregation turned to somebody else, asking the same question, is is there any way that I can love you today? And within minutes, the whole church was just full of chatter. It was noted that morning that 28 people came to the building unemployed, and every single one of them left with a job. Single mothers had people offer to spend time with them and come and help them. Juan Carlos went on to list group after group who had their needs met directly by others who had been in the service that morning. He said this, If I had preached my message on love that morning, they would have shaken my hand at the door and said, Thank you, that was a great message, I really enjoyed that. But 28 people would have gone home unemployed. And to be absolutely honest, he says, nobody would have cared. The next Sunday morning, he got up in the service, went to the pulpit, opened his Bible, and said, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is the same as last week. Love one another. And for three months, he never preached a sermon. He just read out those words every week. Love one another. Naturally, a lot of people complained about this. About 300 people left the church, saying that he had not been employed to do that. He had been employed to preach. Anybody could just get up behind a pulpit and say those words. But he said, although we had previously grown from 300 to 1,000, we used to be 300 unloving Christians who had simply become 1,000 unloving Christians. That isn't growth. Those three months, he said, transformed our church. People actually got involved in other people's lives. After those three months, he got up to deliver the message and he said, This, brothers and sisters, the Lord has given me a new text this morning. And everyone applauded and cheered. He said, My text this morning is this love your neighbor as yourself. And I don't think I need to tell you the rest of the story. Within, within minutes, the entire church was empty. People had left to go out and be missionaries, priests, and prophets to their neighbors. To go and simply ask, is there anything I can do for you? Is there any way that I can love you today? Do you need anything? There are no small or insignificant missional endeavors of love in the kingdom of God. We don't need to find the perfect tool of engagement or perfect method, an effort as small as a mustard seed will do. I'll ask it again. Are we caught up in the imagination, in the simple imagination, of just the world around us? Or are we caught up in the imagination of Christ's kingdom working among us? In this, of this powerful, and transformative reality that's, that's growing and maturing and doing things and, and changing hearts around and among us, even in distressing circumstances. Do we believe that that's still happening? And do we believe that we can still enter into that? Because consider the one himself who's teaching us these things. Consider Jesus himself, Yes, he is Christus' victory. Yes, he is the powerful and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, he's the mighty King of Judah. But the prophet Isaiah said this about him. He grew up like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Paul writes this in Philippians, that he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant. And when we look at Revelation, when we get that picture from John of of the mighty one sitting on his throne, what do we see? lamb. In Greek, it's actually a little lamb. A little lamb that was slain. A little lamb, meek and gentle, is the center from which all of heaven's glory flows. All of heaven's power, all of heaven's transformative work flows from a little lamb on a throne. The seeds of his kingdom, as we've seen, are going to suffer hostility and oppression. It's going to happen, but this is our hope. That they will nevertheless become a tree under whose branches all the nations from every tribe, tongue, and people group can come and find rest and shalom and peace under its shade. The world is coming to the throne room of God. This is the kingdom imagination that we are blessed to live into. May we sow the seeds then of this kingdom and be blessed with the ears to hear it and the imagination to see it. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you inspired your servant Matthew to write these words down after he had spent time with you. Grant us, Lord, the ears to hear you, the eyes to see you, and the imagination to believe beyond what we expect. Transform our hearts, Lord, so that we may be sowers of your seed in your field, which is the world. Grant us the courage, Lord, and the confidence to live into this imagination, this reality that you've given us. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.